we continue worshiping together today, receive these words from the book of Acts, the second chapter, beginning with the first verse. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every people under heaven living in Jerusalem. At, the sound, at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. All of my help comes from the Lord. God, we thank you today that every bit of our strength comes from thee. And we know whenever you call men and women to preach, you take the risk of putting treasure in trash, treasure in an earthen vessel, sometimes flawed and failing and weak, and yet you do it that the excellency of the power might be of thee and not of us. So hide us behind the cross, cover us in your blood, fill us with your spirit, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart might be acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, our strength and blessed redeemer, amen. Let's thank God for this Pentecost Sunday. Where Sophia is indeed pouring out on us today. Amen. Let me thank God for the angel of this house, Pastor Ginger. Would you join me? Let me thank God for the conferees who are the church today, not the church tomorrow. To our dear sister, our dear colleague and clergy and ministry, just confirmed and ordained, thank God for you today. Amen. Let me thank God for Pastor Alvin Jackson, the executive director of the 
a mass moral march on Washington we're having, who is the reason I'm here today through his connections with Pastor Ginger, one of the tremendous clerics of our time, and we thank God for him and love him indeed. I thank God for our co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, who is a preacher in her own right to our national director of religion, Casimir Brown, Reverend Casimir Brown, who's an elder in the AME Church, the African Methodist Church. Uh, to all of the other team members, Ms. Charmaine Fletcher, who tries to keep me on schedule, you all pray for her. That is a hard job. <laughs> Amen. It is, she has to get a crown. To all of you who have gathered here today, as we say down south, if I missed anybody, charge it to my head and not to my... You from down south. Yes, that's right. I got to mention my, my, my counselor, though, Pender Hair. I didn't know she was a powerful liturgist and scripture readers. Where, where's Pender? There she is. Now, Mr. Mike, man, you just follow along. I'm from down south. It'll be all right. Amen. Amen. The Bible says when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And then chapter 40 says, excuse me, verse 40 says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt, untoward, is the King James generation. I want to try for a moment this morning to talk about it's time for a coming together meeting. It's time for a coming together meeting. And they were all on one accord. What does God call us to do in a world that will crucify love? What does God call us to do in a world that will lynch and kill justice, mercy, and grace? Even when you have seen resurrections and you've seen victories, but you're still existing in a world that will crucify love. That's the world that the apostles were in. They had seen it. They had not read about it. It was not some Gnostic imagination. They had seen the blood. They had heard the screams. They knew that they lived in a world where Jesus was crucified because in the midst of Roman domination, he chose to stand with the least and the left out. 
They knew they were in a world where even after the resurrection, the political systems of Herod and Caesar were still alive and they were still thirsty for death. Thirsty to put down any resistance to the empire. Jesus had been crucified. Because in the face of all the pomp and power of Roman domination that allowed religion as long as it didn't challenge the state, as long as it didn't question Caesar, question Herod, as long as that religion didn't question the state of things, and yet Jesus questioned it with every prayer, with every action, with every healing, with every sermon. And it had crucified him. Jesus said that the priority of life ought to be love and not hate. The priority of life ought to be justice and not injustice. The priority of life ought to be lifting the poor and not catering to the greedy, and it got him killed. R. McCullen, MacMullen, excuse me, in his study of Roman culture titled Roman Social Relations, he noted that um, the aristocracy of ancient Rome continually reminded other people of their superior position. And they did it by always putting on display their conspicuous consumption, their entourages in the cities, their dress, their education, their title. And they insisted that the law discriminate positively in the favor of the aristocracy. Those of the decurions were exiled for capital crimes, while the other 99% of the population were crucified for capital crimes, fed to wild beasts, or forced to work in mines for much lesser crimes. The ruling class under the political system of Herod and Caesar looked down on those who earned a living by manual labor. Cicero described the majority of Roman society as sorus ubers et fox, the filth and the dregs of the city. Now think about how extraordinary it must have sounded. To an audience in the Greco-Roman city, for Jesus to begin his public ministry specifying beggars and heartbroken folk and bruised people and those not welcomed as the very interests of God and the primary recipients of the gospel those on the bottom of the social register were at the top of the mind of God. 
Think about it. In the very beginning of his sermon, in the very beginning of his ministry, you know, Jesus almost got killed at his first sermon. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I preach good news to the poor. That word depotokos means those who've been made poor by systems of economic exploitation, recovery of sight to the blind, healing to the brokenhearted. He even said to declare the acceptable year to, of the Lord, to declare that everybody is acceptable, coming out of Isaiah 56. And the Bible says he preached that first sermon in the ghetto of Nazareth where you would have thought it would have been a welcomed message. But by this time, the ghetto had been so deluded by Herod and Caesar that even the ghetto wasn't open to receiving the message of liberation. And so the Bible says that day they tried to kill him. In the middle of his ministry, he kept poor people and those on the margins at the center, feeding those others would let starve, healing those others would let die, touching those that others said if you touched them, you bore their shame. And at the end of his ministry, as he was headed toward the cross, he was still declaring. Listen at him in Matthew 23. Woe unto those who tithe and every little thing you have, but you leave undone the weightier matters of the law, which is justice. Listen to him as he's headed toward math, cross Matthew 25. And the, and the, and the king will say to, and God will say to the nations, to the governments, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was an immigrant, did you welcome me? And it got him killed. It got him killed. The systems of Herod and Pilate killed him. And now he's gone back to sit at the right hand of the Father and he gives instructions, express instructions to his apostles. Go to Jerusalem and get together and stay there together on one accord until you receive power. And I wonder today, Pastor Ginger, if these instructions have any relevance for us today? Is this just old language, a cute, a nice story for 2,000 years ago? Do we still live in a world where some forces will still crucify love, crucify mercy, crucify just, ju justice? I would say yes. I would say that the greed and the injustice like that of Herod and Caesar is still alive. When I watch sometime Congress open and with prayer and state legislatures open with prayer and then after they pray, they pass laws that pray, P-R-E-Y, on the very people that God called on us to lift, I would suggest that the greed and injustice and the political spirit of Herod and Caesar still lives.
When I'm reminded of what Coretta Scott King once said when she was asked about violence because her husband had been murdered, she said, well, that's not the only kind of violence. She said, violence is starving a child. Violence is not providing education. Violence is denying health care. Violence is denying uh, labor rights and living wages. And then she said, even an apathetic attitude that refuses to address these other forms of violence is violence as well. I would suggest there's still a lot of violence then. And that the spirit of Herod and Caesar in many ways still lives. Liz and I saw this, experienced this in the United States Congress about two years ago when we took poor and low wealth people of every race, creed, and color to testify before the budget committee. Liz and I both had on these stoles that said Jesus was a poor man. And we walked into the, the committee room and as we began to testify, one of the congressmen got mad raised his hands and said, all these people coming in here with these, these stoles on and says, Jesus was a poor man. He says, I've been a Christian all my life. I've been a Christian all my life. I've been a Christian all my life. And I've never seen in the word where Jesus challenged Caesar. <laughs> to which I said, did you just compare yourself with Caesar? Because if you did, we have a bigger problem <laughs> than I realized. But the fact of the matter is, he did. And that let us know that the politics of Herod and Caesar still lives. The greed and justice of Herod and Caesar still lives. The forces that will try to put down movements for justice still live. I wish it were not so. But that, Dr. Jackson, the data bears it out that we must hear the message of Pentecost because the spirit of Herod and Caesar in many ways still live. When we know from studies that there are 140 million poor and low wealth people in this country today, 52% of all of our children 60% of all black people, 26 million people. 45% of all women, 74 million women. 42% of all men, 65 million men. 38, 64% of Latinos, 38 million. 40% of Asian, 8 million. 58% of native indigenous people, 2.1 million. And 33% of white people, 66 million people. When I can come here today from the Southlands, but I have to report to you, even now, in the former Confederate states, there are 52 million people are poor and low income. Almost half and half white and black. Over 13 million people in the so-called Bible Belt are, are uninsured and have politicians that are representing them that fight against them having health care. The greed and the injustice of Caesar and Herod still lives. When the data says that there are 400 people in this country today that make an average of $97,000 an hour, and three people had more money 
than the bottom 50% of all Americans combined, while at the same time, low-wage workers who just want $15 an hour get arrested in our streets. I would declare that the spirit of Herod and Caesar still lives. When 62 million workers make less than a living wage, 53% of all black workers and CEOs make 300 times more than their average worker. Think about it. In 2021, 49 Republicans passed the agenda and two Democrats voted no. In the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of economic downturn, they voted no to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. In essence, saying to 52 million workers, you don't matter. You don't need a higher li a living wage. If you make $12,800 a year, you're not poor. In essence, told them that it was okay not to have raised the minimum wage for 12 years. It's at $7.25. And for restaurant workers, it's only $2.13. When you know the data, it'll make you very clear that the greed and injustice of Herod and Caesar still lives. 87 million people in this country who are uninsured or underinsured. People who have to pray not to get sick because they can't afford the treatment. And even in the midst of COVID, we couldn't bring ourselves to at least provide everybody health care. We are the wealthy, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, 25 wealthiest countries in the world. The only one that is exceptional in not providing health care of some sort is the United States. And pastors like Pastor Ginger, sometimes we have to stand over people and preach their funerals. And the truth of the matter is, it wasn't their time to die. They were killed by policies that cut their lives short. Four million people can get up every morning in this country and buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water. The spirit of greed and injustice still lives. We spend 54 cents of every discretionary dollar on the war economy and less than 15 cents on education and health care and infrastructure. The spirit of greed and injustice still lives. Billionaires made $2 trillion so far during COVID while 8 million more people fell into poverty during COVID. The spirit of greed still lives. And even before COVID hit, 700 people were dying a day from poverty. From poverty. A quarter million people dying a, a year from poverty. Seven people died from vaping. And we had a congressional hearing and presidential meetings. 700 people dying a day from poverty and not a whimper, not a word in our political debates in our political discussions. And then on top of that, all of this death, this fetish with guns and blood and killing. Yes, Buffalo, yes, Texas. But in addition to that, 213 mass deaths already this year. The spirit of greed, when you love a gun more than you love your children, 
the spirit of Herod and, and the spirit of greed and the spirit of Caesar and the spirit of domination still lives. The Economic Policy Institute says if we're going to come back from COVID, we need $10 trillion over the next 10 years, a trillion dollars a year. But we live in a time when we couldn't even have an honest discussion about $1.9 trillion over 10 years. That's what president put forward. We thought it was a step, but it certainly was not the journey. It certainly had, should have been more. He said, look, we want to talk about expanding and enhancing child income tax credit and universal pre-care and climate investment and clean energy and expanding Medicaid. And the first word out of folks' mouths, he, he said, let's reduce premiums for affordable care. Let's expand Medicare. Let's, let's put some money in affordable housing and rental assistance and investment for elder care. And the first word out of the opposition was, no! How much does it cost? When Joseph Sticklidge said that's the wrong question, the Nobel Peace Prize economist, he said that's the wrong question. The question we should be asking is how much does it cost for us not to address these issues? The spirit of Caesar and Herod still lives. Whenever we start conversations in this country with the lie about scarcity, Whenever there's an attempt to address poverty and always the issue is how much does it cost, but when there's a discussion about funding the military or there's a discussion about tax cuts for the wealthy, that never comes up. The spirit of Herod and injustice and greed still lives. And do you know, my brothers and sisters, child poverty cost us a trillion dollars a year in lost economic productivity, increased health and crime costs, do you know that we loot, we've lost $328 billion being pumped in the economy because we wouldn't raise the federal minimum wage to $15? And by the way, when Dr. King was here in 1963, the March on Washington was not just a march about fellowship. It was a march for jobs and justice. And the, and the agenda then was a $2 minimum wage. Index with inflation would be 15 today. Do you know that unstable housing among families with children will cost the United States $111 billion in avoidable health costs? Do you know that a hunger costs $160 billion a year in increased health care costs and another $18 billion in poor educational outcomes? Do you know that public assistance programs spend $153 billion a year as a direct result of low wages? Do you know our broken immigration system cost us $123 billion in lost contribution? Our current health care system cost individuals $1.69 trillion on private insurance and out-of-pocket expenses. And countless avoidable deaths, one study says, for every 500,000 people that are denied health care, some 2,800 die every year. Do you know that inaction on climate change is estimated to eventually cost our economy $3.3 trillion every year? Do you know that our government has spent $21 trillion on war and militarizing our borders since 2001? Do you know that even if our current military budget was cut in half, we would still have more money than Iran, Iraq, China, and Russia combined? 
do you know that our government lost $1.3 trillion by lowering the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. All of these things let me know that the spirit of greed, the spirit of injustice, and the spirit of Herod, and the spirit of Caesar still live. I wish it was not so, but the data bears it out. And so the question is, does Pentecost have a message for us as we face the oppressive realities of our day, the realities that still crucify the soul and crucify dreams and cause people to die because every regressive piece of public policy has a death measurement attached to it? Yes, it does. Pentecost has something to say to us. Jesus left his disciples clear instructions. You must have a coming together. You must have a coming together meeting and receive power in order to stand up to the realities that exist. He says, in essence, with all your differences, you got to put them aside and you have to come together in a meeting with one purpose, and that is to be a countercultural reality to the lies of Herod and Caesar. And if you come together, you shall receive power. And I declare that with all we see today, there must be a coming together meeting. If we ever needed a moral Pentecost, we need it right now. We must say to America, America needs that message of Pentecost, save yourselves. Save this democracy from all this greed and all these lies and all this violence. You've got a chance to save yourselves. The truth of the matter is, my brothers and sisters, it's all right to come in here in the sanctuary. But when I read Pentecost, they went in the streets. And they decided that they wouldn't be silent or unseen anymore. We must have a coming together meeting. We must offer a way to save the soul of the nation and build power. And I, and I know and we must understand that there's a lot that the enemy has done to divide us. Did you know that in 1965, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March, Dr. King said that the great fear of the aristocracy was for the masses of poor Negroes and the masses of poor white folk to get together to form a new political bloc that would fundamentally shift the economic architecture of the nation. He said that at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March, he understood that the power is in us getting together. Did you know that there was a strategy put in place? The tactics were put in place when Kevin Phillips and Lee Atwater, and they picked it up. It was continued by folk like Reagan and others. Recent President Trump charismatized it, pushed it. But the strategy is old. Phillips, Kevin Phillips advised Nixon in 1968 
how to win. He said, what we've got, and they said, the, reason, the way we win is we have to engage in positive polarization. Listen to me now. This is anti-Pentecost. They said, what we have to do is engage in positive polarization. We have to use the, diff, the people's anger over the women's movement, over the civil rights movement, over the LGBT movement, and split people one from another. Jonathan Shell in his book, The Time of Illusion, wrote that Buchanan said, we've got to cut the country in half. And if we can cut the country in half, we will pick the better half. And we can do it in the South, but we can also do it throughout the North. And then Harry Dent said to Nixon, you've got to use racially coded language strong enough to persuade people that Wallace is too mean, but that their feelings are right. You have to use coded language so that it comes across smooth. But you convince people that other people are, the, are, are an endangerment to them. And he said, and when they find out that we're using this plan, we've got to disavow it publicly. And the same politicians that divided once, once they get elected, they use their power to block living wages, to block health care, and to treat corporations like people and people like things. And that's why we must have in this moment a moral Pentecost. It's time, y'all. It's time for a moral Pentecost. It's time for a coming together meet meeting. When we know that if we raise the minimum wage to $15, 42 million people will come up out of poverty, it's time. It's time. When we know that if we provide health care for everybody, people will live who right now are dying, it's time. It's time. We can't be silent anymore. It's time for a come, coming together meeting. It's time for a moral Pentecost where we demand that our policies and our politics and our laws and our legislation first centers and prioritizes the poor and those at the bottom. Because if you lift from the bottom, then everybody rises. It's time. It's time. We can't be silent anymore. It's time that we demand that when we, we cut out this foolishness of talking about are you on the left or are you on the right or are you on the conservative or are you liberal? What about are you establishing justice? What about are you providing for the common defense? What about are you promoting the general welfare of all people? What about are you ensuring equal protection under the law for everybody? Turn this mic up some. What about... It's time for a coming together meeting. In other words, children got to be saved. It's time. Sick folk got to be insured and healed. It's time. Low-wage workers got to be paid. It's time. Housing for all must be provided. It's time. The atmosphere and the environment must be saved. It's time. Indigenous people must be treated right. It's time. Immigration reform and welcoming our brothers and sisters, it must be done. It's time. Voting rights must be expanded and protected. It's time. Spending more, spending more money to blow up the world than to save the world must be stopped. It's time. Using religion to justify hurt and evil must be challenged. It's time. We've got to have a coming together meeting. <laughs> Gotta have one. 
And if the shock of COVID hasn't revived the heart of this nation, and we can be all right with a million people dying and poor people dying at a rate of five times, two to five times higher than everybody else, then what we need is not a shock to the heart. We gotta have a heart transplant. And in order to have a heart transplant, we've gotta have a moral Pentecost. It's time for a coming together meeting because the actions of too few are hurting too many. We must come together. We can't and we won't be silent anymore. And when we have come together in meetings, in God's name, God has a way of sending fire. When you come together in God's name, he sends the fire of illumination and the fire of inspiration. When you come together in God's name, he sends a fresh wind. You thought you was tired, but then a fresh wind comes and blows you into a new direction. When you come together in God's name, he'll give you brand new tongues for truth telling and love telling and grace telling and mercy telling. And he'll give you a tongue that won't be silent anymore. It's time for a coming together meeting. Oh, and let me close by telling you every time that God orchestrates a coming together meeting, something happens. There were all through the Bible, when at the very beginning, the earth was void and without form. And then God had a coming together meeting. And he said, let us, make man, let us make humanity. And there was a coming together meeting when it looked like there was no way out down at the Red Sea. God had a coming together meeting. And when it was all over, the split sea was open. And then Pharaoh was drowned in the sea. When Goliath was, was boasting and warring, God called a coming together meeting between David and five rocks in the valley. And when it was all over, we found out the bigger they are, the harder they fall. When things were bleak and bad and injustice was all around, God called a coming together meeting in the Valley of Dry Bones. And when they came together, they became the hope and the possibility of a new reality. When Shadrach, Meshach, and some folks say that bad Negro faced annihilation in the furnace, God called a coming together meeting. And the Son of God showed up in the fire and they came out and they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. When hunger was hurting people, God called a coming together meeting and fed 5,000 with some fish and some loaves. When, when, when Jesus died on the cross, God called a coming together meeting. And the prophets that had been dead a long time ago started getting up all around Jerusalem. When, when, when God called a coming together meeting, something always happens. In 1852, after the Dred Scott decision, when it looked like the abolition movement was over, God God called a coming together meeting. God called a Pentecost and white abolitionists and black abolitionists, they got together and brought, brought slavery down. And then and then even more, when women needed their rights, God called a coming together meeting. And black women and, 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 and white women came together, Sojourner Truth and Lucretia Mott and Seneca Falls. In the early 1900s, there were no labor laws. Greed was destroying workers. And then God 
called a coming together meeting between the social gospel movement and the labor movement and that's how we got labor laws when black men were being lynched on an average of one per day God called a coming together meeting and got Ida B. Wells and W.B. Boards and other white allies to join in. When people weren't being paid in the middle of the depression, God called a coming together meeting. The bonus marchers, they got together and they demanded that people get paid right. On, on, when, when, when there was Jim Crow in the land and it was all legal, God called a coming together meeting and black men and women and white men and women and Jewish men and women and lawyers, they got together and they tore separate but equal down. When Emmett Till was killed, God called a coming together meeting. Rosa Parks and, and Martin Luther King got together and say, you kill one Emmett Till, we kill your whole system of Jim Crow. God called a coming together meeting. Mm, at the lunch counter in Greensboro, God called a coming together meeting. In Birmingham, with, with less than 40 people at the beginning, God called a coming together meeting. At Selma on the Edmunds Pettus Bridge, God called a coming together meeting. And every time God called a coming together meeting, a moral Pentecost, something happened. In California with farm workers, Cesar Chavez, God used him to have a coming together meeting. And all these meetings brought power. All these meetings brought transformation. All these meetings brought change. All these meetings brought a revolution. I'm here to tell you, it's time for a coming together meeting. <laughs> Hallelujah. America needs a coming together meeting. Are y'all going to join us on June 18th for a coming together meeting? Hallelujah. Pastor Ginger, I'm trying to stop preaching because I know about coming together biblically and I know about coming together historically, but I need to tell you about coming together personally and what God can do when we come together. In 1993, I was told I might never walk again. I was told it all over for me. I was told I might have to be in a nursing home. I was told that my body wouldn't work anymore. I was told that Anka Nelson had destroyed my hip roses. But then God called a coming together meeting. My doctors got together. My therapists got together. The prayer warriors at the church got together. My faith got together. My swim coach got together. I can't run, but I can hop now. I can still stand now. Because God called a coming together meeting. I serve a God that can still call a Pentecost meeting. So there's only one thing left to ask. Are you going to be at the meeting? Will you help us have a meeting? Will you go home and bring folk to the meeting? Because if we have a meeting, God will help us. If we have a meeting, God will visit us. If we have a meeting, we can turn this nation around. When I was in the old church down south, they used to sing, I want to be at the meeting. I want to be at the meeting. I want to be at the meeting round the throne after the separating of the right from the wrong. Well, I don't want to go to heaven yet, but on June 18th, I want to be at the meeting. I want to be at the meeting when black folks stand up and white folks stand up and Latino folks stand up and Asian folks stand up and indigenous folks stand up and gay folks stand up and straight folks stand up and 
Muslim people stand up, and Jewish people stand up, and Christian people stand up, and all of us stand up, and we call for moral Pentecost in America. It's time. It's time. It's time for a coming together meeting. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, will you meet me at the meeting? God is up to something and I want to be at the meeting. <laughs>